When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. What does every grocery store aisle now have in common? Products that come in paper packaging. And we don't just mean the obvious ones like cereal boxes and juice cartons. From beauty products to boxed water, there are more opportunities to go paper-tarian than ever before. So why should you? Because paper comes from a renewable resource and can be recycled up to seven times. Simply put, it's the smart choice for the environment. And it turns out, the easiest choice for you. Learn more at howlifeunfolds.com slash papertarian. What do the most successful growing businesses have in common? They're working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. Go behind the wheel, under the hood, and beyond with Car Stuff from HowStuffWorks.com. Hi, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Scott. And I'm Ben. Ben, today's topic is a listener suggestion. We love listener suggestions. Mm-hmm. Right? Some of our best ideas come from listeners. Absolutely, because uh, sometimes we just feel kind of tapped out. I mean, uh, we've, we've covered so many things over the past, what, six plus years? Mm-hmm. Um, there are times when uh, we get into a little lull, and we're uh, we're kind of, I don't know, spitballing ideas back and forth between us. And, uh, <laughs> we've and then, done all of them. <laughs> exactly right. And then, you know, we think, well... Let's check out our uh, listener mail, and uh, lo and behold, there's a fantastic idea somewhere within listener mail, and that happens a lot. So uh, so please keep sending those in, because today's topic is evidence of that. Yes, uh, Costa B. writes into us, and we hope we're pronouncing your first name correctly, and Costa says, uh, Today I searched the Car Stuff website and noticed that you have not had an episode on the Citroen car from France. Hmm. Hmm. And he goes on to say back or Costa goes on to say back in the day around 1992, my family went on a road trip throughout Europe in a Citroen BX 16. It was the perfect European road trip car. It could handle the German Autobahn. And thanks to their proprietary hydro pneumatic suspension, it could handle going off the beaten path near Mount Olympus in Greece. Uh, And that is a feature that we're going to cover, by the way, the hydro pneumatic suspension. So. Hold your breath for that one. <laughs> yes. And, uh, and Costa, I love the ending of this email says, I'm wondering if you guys will ever cover this funky French car. I know it was far from perfect, but it definitely has its own character. You know, the thing about these cars, Ben, and we're here in the United States saying this, and there's going to be reasons, or we'll, we'll explain the reason why we're not as familiar with Citroen cars mm-hmm. as, as the rest of the world is. Or mm-hmm. Citroen or Citroen. Citroen. Is Citroen, right? Uh, is, yeah. Is the right way to say it? Let's just keep rotating through all the pronunciations. Uh, you know what? I know that I will. I'll try. <laughs> I'll try my best to do it the proper way, which is uh, Citroen. But, um, yeah, this is a good point. I mean, there's, it is kind of a funky French car, and it does have kind of a cult following here in the United States. Oh, but sure. It never really got beyond that here because it was just offered in such limited numbers in in North America, and uh, you know there's a few around. I see a few. I mean, sure, I, every I now have, and then. Very, very rarely. I mean, I can tell you maybe. Oh boy, you could probably count on both hands. No, one hand maybe even the the number of them I've seen. Even even at car shows here, um, I've got very little experience with them. There's one that uh, that drives around 
uh, Roswell, Georgia. It's, uh-huh. it's a uh, two CV. Uh, so the kind of looks like the looks, I mean, in layman's terms, looks like the Volkswagen Beetle. Sure. The old Beetle design. Um, and then there's also one that uh, when I, and I didn't know I've mentioned this then in the past. When I was in high school, there was a girl that went to our high school that uh, her family, uh, they had won a Citroen in a uh, radio contest. And it was parked alongside the garage you know, near her house there. And it was co- always covered up with a tarp or halfway covered up with a tarp. Uh, but you could sometimes catch a glimpse of it. And that was about it. I mean, that's really my only um, experience with Citrons here in the United States. They just aren't plentiful like they would be anywhere else. Yeah. And I love that you say anywhere else because it's a weird thing that you and I found. The Citroen is incredibly popular throughout the rest of the world. But as you said, going back to um, its status as an import car, mm-hmm. I think, in North America, that really restricted the ability of car buyers to purchase it. And there's sort of this catch-22 with a popular car sometimes. You know, uh, you have to see it around to decide if you want to get one, but somebody has to get one for you to see it around. You know what I mean? Yeah, I understand. Yeah, it's just uh, It's just not there. It's just not there. It's not there for us anyways. But the rest of the world, sure it mm-hmm. is. And we'll talk about why it is when we get to it. But um, just to give you an idea of how big of a car company Citroen is right now. Uh, well, actually, it's it's PSA Peugeot Citroen. Not to uh, give anything away. but uh, Yeah, we'll get to that part. We, we have to make sure that we mention that up front, I think. So PSA Peugeot Citroen, they've, they sold something like 2.9 million units in 2012. And that was enough to make them the second largest Europe-based automaker um, and it gets even better than that, Ben. If you want to mm-hmm. count them on a worldwide scale, let's go for uh, it. They're the ninth largest automaker in the world, measured in unit production. If you want to go that way, and, sure. but that was in 2009. I couldn't find numbers more current than that that tells me, you know, where they place or where they rank worldwide. Those numbers can be a bit slow sometimes. Yeah. There's there's a lot to compile. You <laughs> know what I mean? Slow is uh, is definitely uh, the way it is here with this. Now, there's other stuff that we can cover just before we kind of get into it. If yeah, you want. yeah, absolutely. Um, so maybe just kind of like the, uh, I guess you'd call this the about section, about <laughs> Citroen. <laughs> yes. Um, it was founded in 1919. Uh-huh, by a French industrialist. Andre Gustave Citroën. Mm-hmm. He passed away in 1935, which we'll also tell you about. And just recently, the brand celebrated its 90th anniversary. It was, you know, 2009, so just about five years ago. So they're they're up to 95 at this point. They've gone through a lot of changes, though. Oh, yes, they have. They, have. <laughs> they sure have. And uh, you know, they were. The, this is the first mass-produced car company outside of the United States. So it's a it's a mm-hmm. big deal. I mean, it's it's got a long long history that we'll tell you about. Uh, they were pioneers in uh, a lot of modern concepts, and they've created um, one unique thing here that that other automakers didn't do prior to uh, prior to Citron. They created a sales and service network that complemented the vehicle, which it just seems so basic now. It uh-huh. seems like you would always do that, right? But it yeah. wasn't the case up until Citron did it. And within eight years, so by 1927, because you remember it was founded in 1919. 1919 yeah. Citron had become Europe's largest car manufacturer and the fourth largest in the entire world by 1927. That's remarkable. Yeah, it's extraordinary for sure. Let's talk just a little bit about Andre himself. Yes. That's cool. Yes. But first, let's pause for a word from our sponsor. If you use paper, you're a human. But if you choose paper, you're a papertarian. Someone who lives a paper-based lifestyle because it has a positive impact on the planet. And also because it's the easiest choice you'll make all day. Seriously. It's as easy as reaching for boxed instead of bottled water. It's as easy as opting for beauty products that come in paper packaging. 
it's as easy as grabbing eggs in a cardboard container. And that's all in one trip to the grocery store, which, if we're being honest, you were planning to go to anyway. But paper isn't just an easy choice. Papertarians know that it's the smart choice, too. Because paper comes from trees, a renewable and sustainably managed resource. And paper products are designed to be recycled. In fact, when you choose products that come in paper-based packaging, those fibers can go on to be recycled up to seven times. So why wouldn't you go Papertarian? I'll wait. Learn more at howlifeunfolds.com slash papertarian. Get emotional with me, Radhi Devlukia, in my new podcast, A Really Good Cry. We're going to talk about and go through all the things that are sometimes difficult to process alone. We're going to go over how to regulate your emotions, diving deep into holistic personal development, and just building your mindset to have a happier, healthier life. We're going to be talking with some of my best friends. I didn't know we were going to go there on this. People that I admire. When we say listen to your body, really tune in to what's going on. Authors of books that have changed my life. Now you're talking about sympathy, which is different than empathy, right? And basically have conversations that can help us get through this crazy thing we call life. I already believe in myself. I already see myself. And so when people give me an opportunity, I'm just like, oh great, you see me too. We'll laugh together, we'll cry together and find a way through all of our emotions. Never forget, it's okay to cry as long as you make it a really good one. Listen to A Really Good Cry with Radhi Devlukia on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. As the number one audio company, iHeartMedia gives you access to all. Every audience, live conversations, trusted influencers, and the insights and data you need to grow. iHeartMedia is your access company. Go to iHeartResults.com for more. Scott, as we established earlier, uh, Andre Gustav was born in 1878. He was the last child, the baby of the family, the fifth kid. Uh, his dad was a diamond merchant from the Netherlands. Now, before Andre was born, they had moved to Paris from Amsterdam and, uh, they changed their name here, uh, to give it that, uh, what is it? Diaresis or the little umlaut thing over the E. Yeah. Uh, and unfortunately, uh, his father passed away when Andre was quite young. And so he, uh, became, I don't know, what's the best way to say it? Uh, he, he knew that he would have to make his own way, I think, from a very early age. And he's a smart kid. He graduated, uh, the Ecole Polytechnique, uh, the Polytechnical University in 1900. And, uh, at the same time, you know, his parents, uh, his mother passed away as well. Hmm. So he didn't have. It's a rough start. Uh, it is a rough start, but. He visits Poland that year uh, where his mother was born, and he sees a carpenter working on a set of gears with a fishbone structure. And this guy is an engineer through and through, Scott. Okay. Uh, so he begins getting his own gears turning, right, yeah. in his head. And uh, this brings out one of the big innovations of Citroën, which is the double helical gear and that's just one of many innovations that Citroen created. Yeah, in fact, he uses that as part of the logo for the company. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you look at the Citroen logo, uh, you can see the uh, the two uh, two uh, chevrons. Yeah, double chevron. A double chevron, and uh, that is supposed to represent the intermeshing contact of the two gears that we're talking about. This uh, the chevron shaped gear that was used in milling originally. Mm-hmm. And again, he picks this up at twenty two. He uh, he um, he bought the patent. I, yeah, he did. He bought the patent to apply it to steel. 
Mm-hmm. And uh, and that's how that works out. So and, and that even carries forward through. They've got a new logo for their 90th anniversary, and uh, they, they, of course they remain with the uh, the double chevron. Mm-hmm. And uh, I mean that's kind of nice. I mean that it throws all the way back to when this guy was 22, just starting out. But he was pretty successful early on because he already had he had a modern factory. Mm-hmm. And at the time, you got to remember that this is during World War One, and it's building um, armaments for France for the war. So it's building, you know, military weapons. I'm not sure exactly what was going on in his factory, but he has this modern factory. And then he's got this realization that, you know what, someday peace is going to break out, believe it or not. Mm-hmm. And uh, what am I going to do with this big modern factory that I've got? I've, right. got? I've got to get a plan in place, and it's got to be something that's, uh, you know, going to be profitable, obviously, but, you know, to also provide jobs to the locals, et cetera. And he was trying sure. to think of what am I going to do, and... The idea was that, you know, of course, there's this new thing, the automobile, or relatively new. Right. Not it's brand new. on. Yeah, I mean, it, it, you're right. It's probably a couple decades old at this point, but mm-hmm. uh, it's, it's getting more and more popular. And he's thinking, hey, why not make this place into an automobile factory? And he's already got this idea by about 1916, which is a couple of years before the war ends. And I think he'd already asked a guy, an engineer at Panhard. Mm-hmm. Um, the guy's name was uh, Louis de France uh, to design what they called a technically sophisticated 18-horsepower automobile that he could possibly build at his factory, you know, once the war ends. And, you know, long long before any of that ever happened, you know, before the war ended, he had already decided that that maybe wasn't the way to go. He was looking at guys like Henry Ford over here in the United States, mm-hmm. and he saw the way that Ford was, was, you know, making automobiles that were, you know, of good quality, but also, you know, um, you could make sufficient quantity of them. So he was looking at the the methods that Henry Ford was using. Yeah, to scale. He said a lighter car that was that was good quality, but also uh, had to be reproducible enough that you could you could hit that economy of scale and make the price go down for the average post-war consumer. Exactly right. And this is really critical because when we talk about the first car that comes out here in just a moment, mm-hmm. um, you know, he sticks with that, uh, that idea. He wants to, to maintain true to that, to that original thought. And that is eventually, in a way, the downfall because uh, there's, <laughs> there's a couple of bankruptcies that we'll talk about. Right. And, uh, and that leads to one of them. So, you know, we said in 1916, he's got this idea for this 18 horsepower car, but, in 1917, he contacted another engineer. The guy's name was uh, Jules Solomon. Mm-hmm. And he had a good reputation um, in the French automotive sector. And there were a lot of French automobile companies, by, by the oh, way. Oh, yeah, proliferation. Uh, because let's keep in mind that France was a hub of uh, automotive and, and motorcycle activity, too. Uh, Scott, we should also mention that this was not... Andre's first time at the uh, automotive rodeo, right? Because <laughs> he was also in 1906 director for the automotive Moore's company. I like that that same Ben. Well, the, first time at the uh, automotive rodeo. There, there's something there. We could play with that. The pieces work. are there. Maybe yeah. we can fix that up. Yeah, yeah, I like it. Yeah, all right. I we'll like fix it, it so, in post, so, right, Noel? <laughs> Shout out to our super producer, Noel Brown. <laughs> that might be an impossible task at this point, but uh, but yeah. So he's uh, he's already kind of uh, he's he's. I dipped his toe in the water, I guess. Right, and now he goes full in with those engineers, right? Mm-hmm, that's and, right. Uh, let's see. He starts making automotive history pretty quickly. Yeah, because he. Uh, you remember I, I mentioned 1917, right? And, mm-hmm. and Jules Solomon. Well, this guy he designs. Um, he designed another car in 1909 called the Le Zebra. Le Zebra. Yeah, I think I'm getting this right. And there's a lot of French <laughs> pronunciations here, but um, he he comes to this guy with a uh, with a lot of demands. 
And this is an unusual one, Ben. He's dropped the horsepower down to 10 horsepower. Yep. And uh, he says it has to be a brand new design, 10 horsepower, that's going to be better equipped, more robust, and less costly to produce than any rival product at the time. And lo and behold. So that's his market, right? Yeah. And uh, and he comes out with uh, what they call the Type A. Yeah, just uh, four months after the close of World War One in yeah. March 1919, they uh, debut the Type A. A, uh, it comes out at the end of May. It's exhibited in June. Um, and, uh, it's at a place that usually sells Alda cars. But they persuaded the guy who owned the business to let them use the showroom just for a little bit. Isn't that something? So they said, uh, we'd just like maybe this corner to exhibit mm-hmm. this, uh, this type A. And the guy probably said, uh, you can do whatever you like, I guess. I mean, we'll, we'll charge your rent for it probably, right? Sure. By the foot or whatever. Yeah. But eventually this thing started to take off. And, it, you know, it wasn't too much longer before he sold his first vehicle because um, I think we said that, you know, June was when they first came out with this vehicle, right? Yeah. Is yeah. that right, June? Um, or am I making be. that up? No, no, no. It, uh, you're, you're right. It was exhibited at the showroom in June. Uh, the first actual delivery to a customer was July 7th, 1919. Um Top speed of this, by the way, I'm sure a lot of people want to hear that because they heard horsepower. Uh, the top speed of this 10 horsepower car is about 65 kilometers per hour. Yeah, that's not bad. That's not bad. I mean, I'm going to guess here. Is that like 40 some miles per hour maybe? Is that it's right? Around about. It's that's got to be ballpark, right? Yeah. All right. So that same year, now this is amazing. Just, I mean, just on the heels of him launching his first brand new car in, in 1919, this Type A, he starts to, you know, Andre Citroen, starts to negotiate with General Motors here in the United States. Now, you got to remember that General Motors is is basically a new car company at this point because right. uh, they were founded in about 1908, so they're only like 11 years on at this point. But they're talking to Citroen about um, possibly buying out the nameplate. They're saying, we like what you're doing with the Type A. Yeah. It might be an in for us in the European market. However, they ultimately could not reach a an agreement because mm-hmm. I from what I understand the the concern really came from General Motors they were a little bit worried that they would be stretching themselves too thin mm-hmm. with the investment that would take well makes sense I mean here they are they're, they're relatively new at this point they can't right. just go around buying and selling companies across like, the uh, ocean like they do now right <laughs> so, shots well, fired or Scott. they or they did at least not, not so much okay anyways let's move on from that point so <laughs> Um, one thing that he was good at. Now, of course, he said that, you know, the negotiations did fall apart. Obviously, they yeah. did not work out, you know, a plan between them. So it didn't work out. And there was also something that, that Andre was really good at. He was good at marketing his own product. Oh, yeah. I mean, no exceptional kidding. at marketing his own product, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. He, uh, was a, um, almost a one man band in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. He was the showman as well as the business end. Um, also, uh, here's the thing. Here's the thing. Andre Gustav Citroen is a little bit like Tony Stark uh, in that, you know, he's got a little bit of flash, he's got a little flair, he likes to live dangerously. We'll talk about the gambling eventually, okay. but just spoiler alert for everybody listening, uh, this, this guy is a personality, you know what yeah. I mean? And so he, in some ways, in the early days of Citroen, he is part of the brand. I never expected an Iron Man reference in this, uh, in this episode. If you use paper, you're a human. But if you choose paper, you're a papertarian. Someone who lives a paper-based lifestyle because it has a positive impact on the planet. And also because it's the easiest choice you'll make all day. Seriously. It's as easy as reaching for boxed instead of bottled water. 
It's as easy as opting for beauty products that come in paper packaging. It's as easy as grabbing eggs in a cardboard container. And that's all in one trip to the grocery store, which, if we're being honest, you were planning to go to anyway. But paper isn't just an easy choice. Papertarians know that it's the smart choice, too. Because paper comes from trees, a renewable and sustainably managed resource. And paper products are designed to be recycled. In fact, when you choose products that come in paper-based packaging, those fibers can go on to be recycled up to seven times. So why wouldn't you go Papertarian? I'll wait. Learn more at howlifeunfolds.com slash papertarian. Get emotional with me, Radhi Devlukia, in my new podcast, A Really Good Cry. We're going to talk about and go through all the things that are sometimes difficult to process alone. We're going to go over how to regulate your emotions, diving deep into holistic personal development, and just building your mindset to have a happier, healthier life. We're going to be talking with some of my best friends. I didn't know we were going to go there on this. People that I admire. When we say listen to your body, really tune in to what's going on. Authors of books that have changed my life. Now you're talking about sympathy, which is different than empathy, right? And basically have conversations that can help us get through this crazy thing we call life. I already believe in myself. I already see myself. And so when people give me an opportunity, I'm just like, oh great, you see me too. We'll laugh together, we'll cry together and find a way through all of our emotions. Never forget, it's okay to cry as long as you make it a really good one. Listen to A Really Good Cry with Radhi Devlukia on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I feel that it is apt. <laughs> also, Actually, you know, it probably is apt. You're right. Yeah. You're right. So, you know, we mentioned that he's really, really good at marketing, right? And he's mm-hmm. kind of this big, bold character, as you say. In fact, he's so bold that he decides to use, get this, Ben, the Eiffel Tower as the world's largest <laughs> advertising sign. And you can go and find photos of this if you'd like to, because yeah. between the years of, uh, what was it, 1925 and 1934, so for for nine years, the the letters Citron were up and down the uh, the Eiffel Tower mm-hmm. in lights mm-hmm. every evening. And it's huge. I mean, it's, it goes from the top to, uh, to well, at least looks like looks like more than midway down. I mean, it's yeah. an enormous advertising, a huge billboard in lights in Paris, in 1925 nine years nine full years now that's pretty big i mean that's uh again i think i think it still holds the uh the world's record the guinness world record for the largest advertisement and during this time they're also making different types of cars too they didn't just keep reiterating the type a um there's the 1923 type c mm-hmm. um which is not a not a bad car it was the first car to be driven around australia oh yeah this is big <laughs> and it's a tough car too ben i mean to drive around australia now think about this even now there's desolate places in australia right right oh remember that episode we did on uh road trains yeah, in australia yeah. oh yeah those guys uh, i mean they get way out in the middle of nowhere and there's no stopping them they just keep going it's, yeah it's, it's, that was a fun episode I that really was a that. really but, good one but imagine australia in 1923 just how mm-hmm. desolate some of those areas are mm-hmm. this is the first car to drive completely around australia 
The trip took five months back in 1925. That's how difficult it was to make this trip. Five months. August to December. Yeah, amazing. So uh, they're really tough cars. And he was doing other unusual things, too. Like they were putting these uh, these track systems on cars to... uh, to allow them to cross what they called inhospitable areas, you know, like mm-hmm. maybe uh, sand dunes or just, um, you know, jungle-type terrain. These are called Kgres track system vehicles. And uh, you can picture these probably in your mind. They've got a, a track system at the rear of the vehicle. And in the front, they would often um, fit skids or uh, skis mm-hmm. of some kind. Sometimes it would just be wheels, uh, but it was more than likely skis. These vehicles used a kind of rubber or canvas continuous track, which used a, a flexible belt instead of, like, the interlocking metal segments like you'd find on a regular tank. Mm-hmm. So it's not a, a metal tra- uh, track system. It's more either either rubber or canvas. Now, this conveyed uh, scientists and journalists. This this was sort of seen as a um, an, an innovation that allowed the – now, we got to be careful with this part of the story, buddy – that allowed the civilized world sure. to explore the wilds on the edges of the map, and he – took this across several continents, and you and I were talking about this off-air. He had names for these that uh, would be wildly inappropriate yeah. today. and should we say them? In? I have yeah, one let's on, I guess, just say them. Let me, let me tell you, this is the 1920s. True. And this is the, the guy that's, you know, he's sponsoring these expeditions across different regions and different areas. And, and it, I mean, it's a little bit insensitive now looking back, but, uh, but this is just what he did back then in the 1920s. It was kind of the way it was, really. I mean... We're just reporting the news, right? Yeah. All right, so these expeditions, I mean, just for example, he had an expedition that went across Asia, and he called that the Yellow Journey. Right, and he had an expedition across North America, which he called the White Journey. Yep, and then he had one across Africa, and he called that the Black Journey. So you can see that, you know, it's maybe not, you know, the uh, the most... Um, culturally sensitive thing to name these journeys or these expeditions. And what would he say when he got to Antarctica? Because he already used White Journey. I don't know. The uh, Antarctica? I would say the uh, penguin squishing journey. journey? I I don't know. I just feel like it was bad marketing on his part. (laughs) But actually, as we know, as history shows, uh, this uh, Kegris track was enormously impressive. And at at the time, this guy is making serious moves because they're still building cars, right? In 1924, they partner up with an American named Edward Budd, right? Yeah, Edward Budd, and that name you may recall from when we talked about the Budd Company, uh, which was, uh, and I think right now that's uh, that's based in Troy, Michigan, mm-hmm. uh, but it was not always there. I, I can't remember exactly where it was, but Budd, or Budd Company, was the company that would build these stainless steel bodies for railroad cars. In fact, the uh, the Pullman cars that a lot of people can probably picture in their mind, those stainless steel uh, train cars, mm-hmm. those were Bud Company vehicles designed by, you know, the founder, Edward G. Bud. And um, let's see, I think Dodge was Bud's first big client because, you know, they were kind of new to the game of building just uh, not stainless but steel bodies. Right. Uh, I remember we talked about them going from uh, sw- the switchover from wood to steel and the Dodge brothers were kind of early on with that, right? So mm-hmm. the Dodge was Bud Company's first big client. Um, and I think it was in the, um, the October, about the October 1924 Paris Motor Show, I think it was, Ben? Yeah. That Citroen introduced the, uh, the Citroen B10, which is the first all steel body in Europe. Ah. And that, and that was because, you know, because of his relationship with, uh, with Bud Company founder Edward G. Bud. And it was successful at first. But the other guys in the game got wind of this and said, hey, why are we using wooden structures like a bunch of suckers? Let's redesign our bodies. 
Citroen did not, however. They still sold in large quantities despite not changing it. Uh, and the thing was that the car's low, low price, the car's we must be crazy to make deals like this price actually was kind of crazy, and the company started taking losses on every car they sold. Yeah, he decided that, you know, affordable was the way that he wanted to go, and, you know, not necessarily styling was what he uh, he needed to focus on. And unfortunately, the, the buying public didn't think that way. They thought, well, these cars look great. Uh, I'm going to spend a little bit more money for something that looks a little better at this point. Yeah. And, uh, and it didn't turn out so well for him because... Um, in 1927, he had to ask for some help from a bank, mm-hmm. and they finally uh, renegotiated his debt around a little bit. Lazard, the bank, was Lazard, right? Lazard, yep, that's right. And in 1933, um, they introduced a new vehicle called the Rosalie. <laughs> and the Rosalie was the, this is the first, Ben. This is a, you know, we should go back and talk about first in just a minute. Yeah. Uh, but the Rosalie was the first commercially available passenger car with a diesel engine. Right, they partnered with uh, Harry Ricardo mm-hmm. to build this. Now, Harry Ricardo, he was an early and, and legendary engine designer and researcher from the very earliest days of internal combustion. Yeah, I'm surprised he hasn't popped up more often in the show. Uh, you know, I am too. Um, I, geez, maybe we could even have a podcast about Henry Ricard, or Harry Ricardo, rather. I'm writing it down. Uh, yeah, maybe. That's probably a good idea. But um, again, this is the first commercially available passenger car with a diesel engine. It's the 1933 Citroen Rosalie. Well, you know what, Scott? Uh, while we're talking about the Rosalie and innovations, it occurs to me that this is going to need to be a two-part episode. Oh but, yeah, because even just the list of innovations is long here. I'd, l- yeah. I'd like to get into it. Let's do let's do the list of innovations as the one last thing for this one, oh, and sure. then we'll come back uh, with a. I you know I don't want to give you guys a cliffhanger out there listening to the show, uh, but we will do some innovations, and then we're just going to have to come back because we still both have so much stuff about Citroen. Yeah, pretty fascinating stuff. I mean, the, the company goes through a lot of twists and turns mm-hmm, throughout the years, mm-hmm. and uh, we still haven't talked about why it's not in the United States. I mean, right. Just, there's a lot out there. We haven't still. talked about what happened to Andre. Oh, yeah, that's right. That's a sad story. Okay. All right, well, let's end up on, on an up note, um, and we can go back and forth with some of these innovations. We already mentioned the first commercially available passenger car with a diesel engine. Exactly right. So, uh, you know, going along with this history of innovation that the company has, uh, they also introduced the first industrial mass production of vehicles outside of the United States. Remember, we talked right. about how he... Uh, looked up to Henry Ford and his way of doing things as, as uh, kind of a template for him. Now, I know we might have to qualify this, but they also, if they did not invent monocoque design, they definitely popularized it. Yeah, that's right, because they introduced, uh, we'll call it one of the first cars to feature a monocoque-type body. Yeah. And uh, that was pretty important, right? And then there's another thing here. Uh, actually, there's several. Uh, we mentioned the first all-steel body, remember the B10? Mm-hmm. Um, and then in a vehicle that they had, they called the Traction Avant, uh, they introduced the, the world's first mass-produced front-wheel drive car. Yeah. I mean, that's, and it's, that's a big deal. Yeah, it's tough to, it, it, it's tough to really get across how big of a deal that is. Mm-hmm. And another one that we're going to come up to here in the, in part two, I'm sure, um, in 1954, they produced the world's first hydro-pneumatic self-leveling suspension system, and that's uh, that's a big deal. Which is what Costa was writing to us about. You're exactly right. Yeah, so we're going to get to that, I promise, in part two. Also, um, the first European production car with disc brakes. Mm-hmm. I mean, this goes on and on and on. I mean, there's... Uh, Oh, what else? Swiveling headlights that we talked about in just a recent episode. Do you remember yeah, that? Yeah, we did. Uh, that's from uh, 
new car technology that isn't new. Yeah, but you remember they weren't first. They were they second. were not first. They were nope. the second one to do that mm-hmm. because uh, that that Czech Tatra vehicle from 1935. A Tatra of all. I'm still amazed by that. Very strange. Very strange. <laughs> all right. So you know, there's a lot of first. There's a lot of uh, interesting vehicles coming up in part two. Um, and some more history about, you know, the, the founder and the company itself and you mm-hmm. know, where it is now. So, you know, listen up for part two. Yeah. And, uh, we hope that you are enjoying our series on the Citroën, despite our variable pronunciations of the French. Uh, check us out. Do us a favor, uh, and check us out on Facebook and Twitter where we are car stuff HSW, uh, help support, um, one of your maybe favorite car shows. I don't know. Maybe we're up there. Maybe in the top ten. Yeah, and if you're on the fence about that, uh, go check out carstuffshow.com. We have every single episode that we have ever done. And if you want to take a line from Costa's book and uh, send us an email directly, now's the time. Our address is carstuff at howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com. Let us know what you think. Send an email to podcast at HowStuffWorks.com. What's up, y'all? Janice Torres here. And I'm Austin Hankwitz. We're the hosts of Mind the Business, Small Business Success Stories, a podcast presented by iHeartRadio's Ruby Studios and Intuit QuickBooks. Join us as we speak with small business owners about the tools they use to turn their ideas into success. From finding that initial spark of entrepreneurship to organizing payments and invoices, we've got you covered. So follow and listen to Mind the Business, Small Business Success Stories on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts. You've probably heard a lot about electrified vehicles lately. Well, Toyota has electrified options for every lifestyle. We've got hybrids. No plug needed. But we also have plug-in hybrids, if that's your thing. (laughs) You can even go 100% electric in the Toyota BZ4X. With so many options for reducing carbon emissions, Toyota is electrified, diversified. Learn more about our Beyond Zero vision for the future at toyota.com slash beyondzero. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you. With professional-grade industrial supplies, count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.